You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Hello, welcome to today's virtual programming with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. My name is Amber Coleman-Mortley, and I'm the Director of Social Engagement at iCivics and the founder of the blog Mom of All Capes, and I also podcast at Let's K-12 Better with my own three daughters. Today, I am super excited and very pleased to be in conversation with Sarah Guillermo of uh, Ignite National, Scott Warren of Generation Citizen, and Amanda Little of Citizenship. I'd like to thank you and Scott and Sarah and Amanda to join us in this conversation. So let's just get started. Panelists, thank you so much for joining us today. Let's start off with how we activate citizens before they even reach the voting age. Part of the that activation process, you know, includes a quality civic education. So, you know, let's begin with a big picture question. I'll start off with Scott first. Can each person, you know, can you give a brief definition of what civic education is and then, you know, how it's different um, now than it was a bit of, of like a short time ago? Thanks, Amber. And so good to be with you all today. And Amber, thanks for, for moderating. Huge fan of your work at iCivics and the work that you do with your, your kids as well is super informative and, and inspiring. So we at Generation Citizen have been thinking about that existential question of, of what is civics education for, for a while. And I think it's even more pertinent now. And, and I think for too often, civics education has been seen as let's understand how government works. Let's understand the nuts and bolts of it. Let's understand how the three branches of government works and, and how a bill becomes a law. Now, now, let me say that all that is, is incredibly important. Actually, understanding how our government works is, is incredibly important. But, but for, for us and for me, civics education at its core is about understanding one's role in our democracy and, and how we can actually participate to improve it and to make it better. And I think that at its core, especially in this moment right now, which I think it's fair to say, and, and we're seeing this all around us, that, that democracy itself uh, is at risk in this country. It's at risk across the world. Uh, that how we educate our young people about their roles and responsibilities to steward this next generation forward, to reimagine what democracy looks like is incredibly important. And as part of that, and I think that this is in, especially important in current times, as part of that is, is understanding the, the history of our democracy, the promises of it when it was founded, the exclusionary principles that were existed when it founded, and the rocky history throughout how American history has been one of inclusion and exclusion. We cannot whitewash American democracy and pretend that it's been smooth sailing for, for all people that are part of it. And so civics education involves understanding the true, often oppressive means of our democracy and, and what can take place going forward. And so that is what we do at Generation Citizen with Action Civics, which is getting young people to experience what politics looks like. Uh, politics is often empowering. It's often powerful. It's often frustrating. It's it's what we're experiencing right now as we try to envision a better world. It's what's going to get us to a different place. And our young people through civics education, I think, are our best hope in terms of getting there. So, so for us, civics education is understanding really how to, to, to help move our democracy forward to a better place. 
I love it. Thank you so much for sharing that, which I think segues perfectly into the work that Sarah does. Um, so, you know, Sarah, if you could answer this question as well, you know, this big picture question about like, what is civic education and how it looks differently now than a short time ago? Yeah, thank you, Amber. Thanks, Scott. I am super excited to join you all today. Um, I'm the executive director of Ignite, a movement of young women who are ready and eager to become the next generation of political leaders. But that does not happen overnight, everybody. <laughs> and so we really at Ignite think about how do we get to young people at their youngest ages and so our curriculum starts in kindergarten, really building ambition. What does ambition even look like? How do we even start to have these conversations and really dismantle the world democracy? And how do you even start to engage in that? I came to Ignite about 11 years ago. We're, go we're in our 11th programmatic year, so we're still pretty young. Um, and I came in as a facilitator and I started teaching in East Oakland. And what I was working with with our young women was how do you make policy super related to what's happening personally in your lives. And so every time we think about gang violence or someone's brother getting shot or, you know, not having enough resources at, you know, for food at your kitchen table um, or lights on, how do we connect each of those different issues to the personal? And so our work around civic education is really getting our young women closest to what that particular policy issue is and getting it really personal to them so that they understand how their personal interactions actually really relay into policy and how policies are created by individuals who may not necessarily look like them or who actually really actually don't look like them. We don't need to sugarcoat that either. And how that really truly happens in our country and in our cities. And I think the really big part of all of this within the work that we're doing is we know that our young women who are closest to these problems are the best individuals to create the solutions to each of these problems. And so that's how we approach civic education at Ignite. There is the foundation building, but it's really thinking about how do you bring the personal to the political? And then how do we shift policies to really meet the needs of each and every single community that we live in? All right. I love it. I love it. So I'm going to like segue and ask Amanda as well to answer this question. I think you know, you will be the last person to kind of connect the dots on this and talk about your work at Citizenship also. And I'm excited as a parent who loves civic education, you know, so can you talk a little bit about big picture, you know, definition of what civics is and then how it has evolved in this short period of time and how it also manifests in your work? Sure. I um, am so honored to be interviewed by you, Amber, and to be in, in the company of these civic all-stars Sarah and Scott, uh, thank you so much for having me in this conversation. I came into this with very little knowledge about what civic education was, and uh, and that actually isn't what informed my interest in this as a parent um, and as a professor of journalism at Vanderbilt University, where I was teaching undergrads, and I recognized that that so much of the energy in activating particularly young voters was focused on 18 to 29 year olds on the youth vote and, and, and how hard it is to reach young 
people, you know, emerging adults at that point, how important it is to reach them earlier in middle and high school, and how little I had done as a parent to support and supplement my own kids' education, civic education. And I took my daughter in 2017 to the Women's March on Washington, and there she is chanting, tell me what democracy looks like. This is what democracy looks like. And I said, do you know what democracy is? And she had no idea, you know, and I, and I began to realize how important it is for parents to take it on, take on the role of supporting and supplementing civic education that, of course, has been eroding in schools for decades and how important it is as young people are rising up right now and taking on so much responsibility as political actors to teach them to love and understand what democracy is before and as they decide to change and heal it, right? Um, and so much of that has to happen in the classroom, but also so much of that has to happen at home. So citizenship was really an effort to see if we can push civics education beyond the classroom and merge it with self-expression and sort of civic entertainment almost. So we've launched this platform just last week. <laughs> I'm definitely a rookie, that is beginning with a series of contests, asking kids to des design their own flags and create and perform their own national anthems and write civic heroes stories and write presidential speeches and so on in ways that uh, certainly draw on curricula, but, but really draw on creative energy. And there's so much of that right now. So, you know, each of you has highlighted the ways in which your organizations take on uh, civic engagement and civic education. Um, you know, obviously strength in numbers, we want to uh, find the spaces for collaboration so that we can lift each other up and ensure that we are strengthening our democracy uh, and, and supporting our youth. So if each of you could talk a bit about, you know, how you see collaboration in the civic education space playing out. There's a, there's a lot more collaboration happening. Generation Citizen and iCivics collaborate frequently. And I, and I will say, just to start, I, I think speaking specifically about the K-12 civic education space in which Generation Citizen finds itself. Um, historically, I don't think that there's been enough collaboration. I think it's been a lot of organizations going at it on its own. Um, and I think this is this is a little bit endemic of the nonprofit sector, not to, to get totally existential here, but many organizations were sort of forced to, to talk about how you know, we alone are, are the, the antidote to so many of societal ills and, and how we're going to uh, you know, make the education system and the world come together in a better place. And the reality is, is that there's no way to do this except working together, which is like what happens in our, our democracy. I think since, really since the onset of COVID, um, one of the things that it made me think about, and I think many leaders think about, is is I do think it's it's humbling to some extent. The problems are so vast, the needs are so great, and we are just one in, in, a, in a series of, of interventions. And I think one of the things that we've tried to do is we want to be as helpful as we can to educators, to schools, to parents, to students across the country. That notion of how can we be as helpful as possible, I think leads itself to collaboration. So that's led itself to a lot of talking with other civic education organizations. We put together something called a Common Good Collaborative with organizations like iCivics, the Make the Challenge, which does fantastic work in action civics based out of Chicago, the Bill of Rights Institute, the Facing History, the Constitutional Museum in, in, in Philadelphia, to think about how can we actually bring our, our different aspects together. iCivics does the best work in the civics education field from a digital perspective and from a gaming perspective. GC does great work, we think, in terms of really providing experiential 
experience for its students and, and, and really solid training for educators as well. And so I, I think that these, these conversations are just starting and, and with Sarah and Amanda, we haven't collaborated as much as, as we could going forward. So hopefully even this panel is, is an entree to more collaboration. But I, I think that um, I'm hopeful that at this moment, we all sort of think about what are the secret sauces, the superpowers that we bring to the table? How can those be leveraged? And then, you know, hopefully to, just to be candid, Hopefully dollars aren't the impediment because I think a lot of this becomes about funding and how we can bring dollars to bear, which unfortunately becomes the impetus rather than how can we best serve students and young people. And so I think being clear eyed about that, being clear eyed about how can we be most successful for the sake of our young people and our democracy is incredibly important at this moment. Okay, I'll jump in, Amber. I am going to make it very clear that I am out of my depth on this question because, you know, I'm so new to this. We have just put this into the world last week and it's a, you know, work in progress. So Sarah will have far better insights than I do. I have found, or we have found that, that appealing to kids directly, there's so much direct communication to kids through Insta, through Twitter, through, you know, all these social media channels. And so much of the information conveyed is from, you know, young and influencers is the wrong word, but young sort of, you know, group leaders, whether it's kids who are already involved uh, through youth in government or debate uh, or uh, Model UN, et cetera. We have found a lot of excitement and, 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 and early engagement with organizations that are working with youth outside of schools. My Brother's Keeper, Big Brother, Big Sister, programs that are, you know, through churches and synagogues and mosques and so on that are working with children, you know, middle and high schoolers in particular, to lower schoolers outside of the classroom, but bringing all of the values discussions to the table, talking about voting, you know, engaging them in community action. That's where we have had the earliest engagement from, you know, partner organizations. I, I mean, I think back to Scott's point is like, we can be doing so much more collaboration across organizations not just beyond the nonprofit sector. A lot of the work that we're doing around coalition building is it, one of our policy priorities at Ignite is around civic education. And I think the big piece there is we've been like coalition building around the country is really finding that there are people who want to do this and it's just not enough time. And I think that that's the big part that has been the gap area of really figuring out because I'd love to my <laughs> I think the big part of like trying to like get the nonprofits out of the way is like really just putting all of ourselves out of business and like making civic education just the norm and so is that the policy standpoint or is that the cultural shift is that the work that we do at Ignite where talking about ambition and being the next president is exciting. Like yesterday, it was my birthday and my beautiful two-year-old niece was like, wow, ah! and everyone's like, um, and everyone's, you know, our family is very much um, women-led, but there's a lot of like, how do we leverage her voice at the youngest age possible so that even if it's about thinking about, am I having ravioli for dinner or am I having linguine for dinner, that there's options and really thinking about how does that really sector out into the rest of the decision making that we may that we can have as opportunities. But I think the big part of it is like, how do we put ourselves out of business so that we don't have to continue thinking about all the innovative ways to collaborate? I know that's obviously what we have to do in the interim, but that's my bigger vision for that. 
first of all, uh, happy belated birthday. That's awesome. <laughs> and then like what I'm hearing from everyone is, you know, there's a space for everyone in the civic education space, which I think is kind of a beautiful thing. Those organizations and individuals that don't, that might not see themselves as civic resources actually can lend and join into, into this effort. Is that also a correct statement as well? Totally. Like you have to break out of the space to create the cultural norm of it. And so I think that that's the systematic piece that we really have to shift. And like we have been doing our legislative advocacy work. And as we go into different communities in each state that we're like, Ta you know, having these conversations and thinking about the bills that legislators at the state level are even willing to put on is super influenced by all of the different individuals and groups that are coming at them about it. But I think it has to go way beyond just our conversation. And I'm hoping the folks that are watching today are, are of different sectors, because I think the more we continue to have this conversation in the sector, the more that it stays within and really thinking about how do you push it out. Yeah, and I, I would just echo, I mean, I think those are both such good points. I think one of the problems with civics education, to so the previous question of what is civics education, it's too often seen as a class, um, where I think it should be seen as an organizing principle for education generally. Now, obviously it can be outside of schools, but you know, if you think about the, the historical purpose of public education, it was to cultivate the next generation of, of citizens for our democracy. And that means that if a school really centers it as, okay, how do we ensure that our young people are entering the world able to, to, to really steward and reimagine our democracy, then you're thinking of, okay, how do math classes become about um, looking at you know survey information or traffic information and understanding local problems. How do science classes become about measuring the pH safety levels of, of water? You know I think that it can become a, a super powerful way of organizing entire you know in, in, entire principles. The, the other point I just wanted to make that, that Sarah made, which I think is so important, is that we all have to be thinking about, especially at this moment, how can uh, how can civics just become something that is seen as as a natural part of the discourse? How can it become something that schools are expected to do, just like they're expected to do math, science, English? Um, and so I think that is a goal rather than just executing good programs is, is incredibly important as well. So all very excellent points. I, I want to move quickly into our next um, question for Sarah. You know, if the ultimate goal is to uplift and maintain our democracy, right? How do young people then understand democracy and how can we all be civically and politically engaged beyond like elections you know so what are some things that you you have uncovered in your work in your organization yeah election day is one day <laughs> um or multi you know obviously multiple days within the year depending on how many primaries you get in your particular state or how many times it gets moved and so i think you know the work that we're doing at ignite there is deep reflection obviously in this post the 2016 election of how do you continue to thrive and really build non-partisanship non dialogue across aisles. And so we've been doing a ton of research and also have been expanding into new communities. I think most folks on this program know that we are housed and incubated within the Bay Area. This is our starting ground. But cities outside of the Bay Area, even Fresno, in bars like Birmingham, Alabama, all looks completely different than what is happening here in the Bay Area. Um, I was like, as I look out my window right now, it is it is like smoky as heck. And I think the big part around that is like, well, that's a climate change issue. And how do we get to that? You know, going back to that first point that I made earlier is how do we get that to the most personal aspect of it? 
So we've been doing a ton of research at Ignite because um, we love research and asking everybody questions. And we've been doing some comparative study research with our young women and folks all across the country that are college age and that are probably first voters in this particular election. And we've discovered a couple things. One, um, they just don't know how to get their (laughs) voter registration. Like, how do you even start? And then once they do, you know, we're clearly in a pandemic. Do I go to school? Do I stay home? Where will I be in November? Will school be out by November? I don't know. And so there's obviously some limits and some barriers and really thinking about that particular piece. And then the last part is then I have the ballot and it's like a test. You know, here in California, we all know that it's like 90 pages and there's so many different parts of it. Who's the, who's X, who's Y? And like, how do I best like fill out my ballot because am I going to be tested on this later in the day? Will I remember what's on my ballot? And so we created our phenomenal Ignite the Vote campaign that we've been doing around voter registration every year, but really double, triple down the efforts this year. And folks can go to our website, ignitenational.org backslash Ignite the Vote. Or if you are tech savvy, you can just text us 333-777. You can text Ignite. We have this beautiful little Sophia bot, and she literally goes through all of the different questions to help you get your ballot and help you with a personalized voting plan. And so that's the first step in truly starting to engage within democracy and when we really start to think about civic participation. But beyond that, our young women are at the front lines every single day. We just hosted a conversation with Janisha Harris, who's one of our fellows in Tennessee, and has been doing just tremendous amounts of work on the ground in Nashville. And that's, you know, a layer of civic democracy and participation that is resounding where this is a moment where we cannot look back. Like, I don't want to go back to the old normal. This is an opportunity for us to like throw that back and think about the dialogue that our young people are having right now. They're using language like anti-racism. They're using language that is so much different than what I did just, you know, in my 10 years ago. And I, I just don't want to, I want that to be our new democracy. So Sarah, you're kind of speaking to an evolutionary process. <laughs> yeah, you're, thinking, you're speaking to an evolutionary process. So Scott, you know, I'm going to actually come to you. Um, you know, schools are under an immense amount of pressure right now to adapt and evolve during this shift toward online learning. You know, so can you talk a bit about the ways that Generation Citizen has taken this into consideration and how you have evolved your own offerings to meet this moment as well? Yeah, and, and I mean, just really appreciate everything Sarah said there in terms of, of I, I do think that there's so much in this moment, there's so much hope in, in how young people are responding to it. Um, and I'll say the same thing with virtual learning. I, I was on uh, a virtual class with some freshmen in college this morning, and they're just great at sort of understanding the, the virtual spaces, I think much better than, than all of us. So I think that there's some hope there in terms of un- them understanding and being digital natives on this. In terms of how Generation Citizen is is evolving, I think us, like like many educational organizations, um, are, are putting everything digitally, both synchronously and, and asynchronously in terms of, of putting out some of our training materials and in, in terms of some of our offerings. Um, so we're really focused on 
um, preparing educators and giving them everything they need to be successful. Uh, and I, I guess I would I would echo something that I said earlier, which is just we the the sort of name of the game for us is how can we be as helpful as we can given all of the constraints that they're under. There might be some of our classes in New York City that are going back in person. Let's be mindful of that. There are going to be other places that are entirely virtual. We're going to provide teachers with with training on on how to do that. For us, civics education. Right now, you're just seeing how much government matters on a daily basis. Um, you're seeing how much government action matters. You're seeing how much government inaction matters. So I think that there is a, a question of how is civics going to be prioritized given all of the other subjects that, that students need to be informed on in, in virtual settings. And, and for us, it's just um, given everything that's happening to them. Uh, it's important to hear from young people and given everything that's going on in the political climate, given everything that happened this summer where young people were in the streets protesting and marching for change, you can't ignore all of that. Um, this needs to be front and center when young people come back to the classroom. So we're trying to provide materials, we're trying to provide resources and be as helpful as we can going forward. Amber, I, I, I would love to jump in with a, just an observation that has been percolating for the last few minutes. I, it's just such a profound paradox right now that, um, and this is one of the statistics that hurled me into this world totally unprepared. Eight states require year-long civics or government class to graduate. 42 states do not, right? And we're in this moment where we're saying, this, is, this has to be everything. It, it, this has to go from nothing, from something that's you know that's required in eight out of fifty states to something that is the to, you know the total frame through which we understand math and literature and and science, right? And and so that's an amazing paradox, and it's an amazing opportunity. It's an extraordinary you know moment to inhabit, especially as you know these leaders of uh, who have been thinking about civics ed for so long are now ready to do that, ready to scale from nothing to everything, right? At the same time, we're seeing young people take on and receive this call to action. We heard President Obama say last night, you are this country's dreams fulfilled. You are the missing ingredients. You are what will give democracy new meaning. You will make us make this democracy live up to its creeds. You will decide if we do that, right? Which is an enormous responsibility for generation that's so poorly prepared and who has parents who are so poorly prepared, right? And at that same moment, within a minute of saying that, President Obama also warned that democracy can wither until it is no democracy at all, right? This generation is on fire. It's empowered in a way. This Gen Z de generation is empowered in a way and vulnerable in a way that perhaps no previous generation has been. And the stakes are higher than they've ever been. Those are two sort of side-by-side paradoxes, if that's the right plural, that these organizations are facing and taking on. And they can't do it without parent involvement. One of the people on our team has no children. It's not about whether you're a parent or not a parent. You can be an aunt, you can be a neighbor, you can be a member of a community, religious or not. That is part of that process of re-investing you know, uh, your household and your neighborhood and your community with a sense of commitment to participating. You know, one of the ways that parents can then supplement what goes on in the classroom, you know, and, and the content uh, that their children are receiving. Like, so, you know, what are some tangible ways? And then Sarah, I'm gonna come to you after um, Amanda gives us a little bit. Ted McConnell, head of Civic Mission of Schools said, 
parents are the kids' first and best civics teachers, in part because they're modeling and conveying basic civic behaviors. So parents who vote have kids who vote, right? There, there's plenty of research on this. Parents who volunteer have kids who volunteer. Parents who give to charitable organizations have kids who give to charitable organizations, who, you know, use the dinner table or, you know, to to talk through and debate and create opinions and, and tolerate opinions and learn to listen. I mean, so much of it is, can we agree to disagree? You know, so much of the responsibility of those basic sort of social behaviors and habits start with, you know, parents or guardians. It doesn't, again, doesn't have to be the parent, the guardian, the aunt, the grandmother, the grandfather, et cetera. And Amber, I've heard you say that it's also goes beyond that, you know, show your kids that you don't just have to show up and vote. You need to research who you're voting and bring your children into that. You know, why are we going to vote for this person? What does it take to learn about this candidate? And that process starts well before showing up to vote. Excellent. Thank you for that. Yes, I am a firm believer in ensuring that the discussion happens prior to stepping into that ballot box, uh, using resources that are nonpartisan, and then bringing your children in with you to vote because you want them to be conditioned to this experience. And although understanding that it's not the only experience that you can have to be a civically engaged individual. Okay. So Sarah, if you could talk about some of the ways that, you know, parents or other adults or mentors can supplement to support Generation Z and, and, and other, uh, you know, younger generations in their civic education. I, part of me is like, let's get out of the way. <laughs> um, I think that there's that part of just like, let them lead. But I get it. I, I, Amanda, you were saying so many different pieces of like, let's give them the opportunity. But we also know that they're the most vulnerable, you know, part of our generation right now. And so I think that there are so many different pieces to continue to support and to continue to create space. I think the norming that I'd really love to see our country really do right now is uplift and really celebrate what Gen Z is doing right now, because I think that starts to really normalize the process. Um, I think the pieces around where you just shared about doing your ballot, we have had Ignite ballot parties at our college chapters. And so like, literally the young women have their slide deck and they go through each part of the ballot and like have conversation together. And then they bring in some of these candidates. Like if you can get enough around the school board, around the city council, then they actually can like have dialogue and talk with them to really understand what this is really about. But I think there's the piece about being at home. We also have some mother-daughter toolkits at Ignite that are free and you can download and really have the continued dialogue um, because we know that a lot of the pieces around dismantling what social issues are to really connect them to policy starts at home as well. I remember really trying to understand as a kid why I was born in the Philippines and when you go to the Philippines, people are knocking on your car door as you're just sitting in traffic for hours trying to sell you things. And I'm like, mom, is that really like their job? Like, how do you and start to process that? And, you know, then you unfold everything around economic opportunity, around social roles, around just really understanding how, why does that, why does that even happen? And how does that fit? And how do you actually then get people engaged in our democracy if those are the different pieces that are plaguing them each day? 
So I think that there's a ton of pieces around getting out of the way, (laughs) creating space, uplifting voices, and really just starting to really build and nourish that the movement that's happening. So sounds like, Sarah, I need to check out your mother-daughter toolkits because that's right up my alley. Okay, awesome. So Scott, you know, when I think of student voice and I think of adults getting out of the way, I really think of Generation Citizen. Um, So can you maybe add some more like ways that adults can support Gen Z um, and younger generations, you know, in their effort of civic engagement and, and civic understanding and civic education? I mean, I love the advice on get out of the way. I think that that's, that's like a, a very concrete thing to, to think about as well. What happens in, in GC classrooms is our young people actually choose a very local issue that they care about. Teen jobs, police brutalities come up for years, homelessness, housing, and then take some sort of real action. And I think what's what's so important is for for far too often, and I think this is this is what we met by civics education. We assume that young people have to sort of learn and take in so much before their knowledge is valuable. And I think you know, especially this summer, we saw young people just refusing to accept the status quo and pushing things forward, which is what we see in GC classrooms all the time. We see them grappling with complex issues and it's incredibly important to grapple with them, to to actually understand the nuances and complexities of topics. But I think what we see, which is really important, is that so much of effective civics education starts with young people caring about an issue. We're seeing that with young people caring about climate change, that leads to to civic engagement. We're seeing that with police brutality, really understanding what does it mean to re-envision what a police department looks like. But I think that that's so important because so often when we think about young people in politics, it's about like, how can we get them to register to to vote, which is incredibly important, but can just be the beginning of a lifelong journey of civic engagement and really do think it starts with with taking action on issues. One thing I will say about voting that Generation Citizen has been supportive of, and the Commonwealth Club is based in San Francisco, um, we've been supportive of efforts to lower the voting age to 16, especially in local elections. And there's an amendment uh, that will be, you know, we were talking about the phone books that we'll receive in California to, to vote on if you're a San Francisco voter in that phone book will be a referendum on lowering the voting age to, to 16 in local elections. We think that's incredibly important. It lost by three points in 2016. We think it's going to win this year. We need people to vote for it. And what's so powerful about that is it's actually giving young people the opportunity to have their voices heard. There's countries around the world that have lowered the voting age to, to 16. 18 probably isn't the greatest age in the world to start voting at because young people are either in college or they're in the workforce. They're not thinking about this. If young people can be voting, especially for things like school board, for, for, for city officials in their first election, there's something really powerful about that. There's a few towns in Maryland that have done so. San Francisco would be the first major city in the entire country to lower the voting age to 16. So there's something very tangible because adults need to vote for that too. So so just in terms of leaving this conversation, if you if you live in San Francisco, I urge you to, to support lower than voting age to 16. But yes, I mean, that's that's some of, I guess I would say it's, it's young people taking action on specific issues they care about and giving substantive ways for young people to lead the way too. So it's not tokenism, but we're actually at least listening to their voices as well. All excellent points from everyone. So, you know, now that we're talking about voting, Sarah, I'm going to come to you. You know, civil rights leader John Lewis famously said, the vote is the most powerful nonviolent tool we have in a democracy, right? But we must acknowledge that there are barriers to voting, one being the voting age being, you know, not 16, right? Where people are excited and engaged, but they can't lend their voice to the democratic process in that way. Can you talk a bit about your organization's research? You mentioned it before, but talk a bit about the barriers um, and the solutions that Ignite National put together to address some of these disparities. Yeah, so 
I, I mean, there's so many pieces within the pandemic part of this. And then obviously we are all seeing the carting away of our beautiful blue postage USPS boxes that are leaving our neighborhoods. And so, you know, the research I'm going to talk about also has the caveat of that is really thinking about there are some very systemic solutions that we need to create in this country to address those particular pieces that are barriers to voting that we have to address as a country beyond just the age limit, but also just structurally. I think the best way to do that is for our young women to be the decision makers that are actually creating that legislative legislation and that policy in our country. And so at Ignite, we not only envision our young women to be voting in elections, we expect that their names are on those ballots. And this year, our young women are running races at the local level, at the state level, all across this country. And that is, I think, the most critical piece in really thinking about how do you truly shift democracy is you have these you have our young people literally there as the ones that are making the decisions the research really briefly just as a retouch around that comparative study with young women from ignite and also young women from all across the country and young men because they are a very large part of our voting block so if gen z turns out to vote this year at their electoral power they'll be 13 percent of the electorate we know that young women are voting at a much higher rate six points higher than and young men. That's the hyper-focus with Ignite. And then obviously the barriers. I just don't know what's on the ballot. I don't know how to register. And then the ballot is such a test for me. And then the layer <laughs> of said pandemic that we are currently living in right now. And I think, you know, with vote by mail, the true voting day is not really November 3rd, everybody. It's actually like October 20th if you can do early voting in your state. And so those are really the big barriers. And so the work that we're doing with Sophia Bot, if you haven't already, you can text 33777 IGNITE to that number and you literally get text messages to remind yourself about the about voter registration de deadlines in your state. And then it really helps you with a voting plan. And I think that that's going to be really critical as we get closer and closer to that October 20th date so that all of us can be super prepared for this election. But beyond the election, we've got to elect more young women helping us to make better decisions from the city council to the presidency. So... I want to ask Amanda a question, like, let's go back to the parenting portion of all of this, maybe because I'm partial, but I'm really excited to, you know, judge the first citizenship contest that's live right now. This idea about engaging our young people eight to 17 is very intriguing. And especially since they can't vote, right? Like this is something that they can do outside of voting. Can you talk about the ways that citizenship integrates civics with creative expression and any other opportunities you see there? Yet another paradox, right? The most important voices, the voices that are shaping and leading our cultural conversation and our political conversation are eight to 18 year olds, you know, third to 12th graders. I mean, there's organizing marches. They're, you know, coming to terms with the fact that adults can't meet the challenge of our political moment. And there's a lot of anger. There's a, you know, where are you? Why aren't you stepping up? 
why do you not know this stuff? <laughs> why can't, you know, it, what's been very interesting to me. So this whole thing started after that March experience I told you with my daughter, we built a group of 25 neighborhood families that met on Sunday afternoons in people's living rooms and porches. And it was taught by moms and dads and aunts and uncles and grandparents. And it was project-based, immersive, homespun kind of Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts for politics, right? And they met newly naturalized citizens, they met state senators, they met federal judges, they got in, into the community, they created campaign slogans. And these, you know, and we really focused on eight to 12 year olds at that point. But what they did, what they could do, what they could do, you know, creating a play or a skit that pivoted around an amendment or coming up with a campaign slogan, or, or we did arts and crafts, you know, redesign your own American flag, write your own national anthem. They're amazing what they brought to bear, right? And then they would turn it around on us. Hey, let's look at this citizenship exam. How, many, how much can you answer on this, mom, you know, dad, you know, uh, professor at whatever institution? How come you can't answer the same questions that a newly naturalized citizen has just answered, right? And it was amazing how both at once, I think, you know, deeply sad it was for us as parents and for them as, as young citizens to come to terms with how um, little their parents knew and and how how both empowering and also scary it is to be given all this responsibility for adults to get out of the way and say okay go you know take it on restore our democracy with so little preparation so this series of contests is really about let's you know do exactly what sarah said let's inspire and reward your creative expression and your ideas. Let's hear it. Let's hear, you know, what you want to celebrate. Let's hear what you want to criticize and question. And let's hear it through your songs. Let's hear it through your visual art. Build your own monument is one of our contests that's coming up. Let's hear it through your words and stories. And there are many ways to be a citizen. I mean, your responsibility and rights as a citizen can be, you can have a huge amount of influence before you vote, right? And you can participate. If you don't love visual art, maybe you love writing or dancing or speaking, or there are many different ways to engage. And so this series of contests was number one, yes, let's get out of the way as adults and just let and hear what they have to say and see what they have to produce. And number two, we there's a cash prize of a thousand dollars for the May, for the first for the winners in each age category, which you know sweeten the deal a little bit in terms of bringing some rewards into it. But really it's let's celebrate and let's think about how we can participate as citizens, as young citizens, before we vote. And, and meanwhile, let's support the, you know, Vote 16 campaign, because that's so crucial. And, I, you know, it's on citizenship.com if you want to get any information about the, the, the contest. But Amber, I'm so excited that you're involved. We have Beto O'Rourke, who's a judge. We have a leader of Young Republicans National Federation. This is nonpartisan. We have Amber and we have Irshad Manji, and we have the judges representing a whole range of political views, a whole range of different, you know, ways of engaging and thinking about politics. And, you know, this is uh, contest number one out of six that will run between now and January 1. 
Awesome. Yeah, it's really important to allow 8 to 17 or 8 to 18 year olds um, the space to explore. I think I found with running a podcast with my kids, you know, they have a ton of solutions to the civic problems around them that, you know, sometimes in school you don't have time to go deeper and explore. So, you know, creative projects, I'm all about it. Like, yes, let's dive into it. So we're running really uh, short on time, but I want to ask this one question of each and every person here before we get to our audience questions. You know, so Scott, I'm going to start with you. This question of, you know, what can we envision for this next generation, right? Like, you know, how can we leverage this moment to really truly shift democracy to a place where things are equitable for every single civic participant? There is some re-envisioning and reimagining of what democracy looks like. And I think we've, we've started that conversation today, but I think it goes back to a thing that we've talked about, which is we don't have all the answers on this panel. And a lot of it is listening to young people who are going to have ideas what our democracy should look like, are going to have ideas on how they can engage in it, are going to have ideas on who should be representing them. And so I think that that's going to be so important in moving forward is how do we authentically and really listen to them and not sort of tokenize, like, we need youth voice because it's great, but actually listen to the ideas that they bring to the table, knowing that this is a generation that is going to have unprecedented challenges. The fact that young people are having to, to experience school virtually, experience university virtually, have graduations virtually, aren't able to see their friends, are, are dealing with what all this means. They have much bigger challenges than generations before them did, are going to be entering a job market with, with unprecedented low opportunities. So to that end, it's really on us to be like, you know, there's a sense of which we screwed this up for you. And so we will help you get to a better place. And so I think that that's, that's you know, in the history of democracy in this country, as I said earlier, is one which has been exclusion and inclusion. We exclude people and then we slowly, slowly include more people. So I'm hopeful that that's something that we'll have more of going forward as well. Awesome. Thank you for that. Uh, Sarah, uh, if you could jump in and just provide a bit about what you envision for the next generation and, you know, how do we leverage this moment? Yeah, I envision that our young people and our young women in particular are represented in government and that they are on these ballots, that they are winning their seats. Gender parity is obviously a very big piece of us at Ignite. And so I really envision that for them at the most local level, on our local boards and commissions, on the youth commissions, at their school races, you know, student body president and, you know, from the treasurer to your class and really leading in those ways as best that they can. And then I think, you know, for me, this moment is is part of a bigger movement. And so I can't, we can't take off our feet off the gas. And I've been saying this for a few days now, but I really say feet, not foot. I know we drive with one foot, but I, I, I really want to emphasize the feet part of this is that they we need both and we need all of us on the same page to really push this forward. I think Scott said it so beautifully earlier, you know, this notion that we could be moving toward a way of learning that integrates civics into everything we do that is a frame for understanding, you know, our engagement around numbers, around science, around everything we learn has application in the world. And for kids to be coming up at a time where that there can be so much practical application of their ideas and their gifts is a beautiful thing. And I'm delighted to be a part of it in any way I can. I think parents have a role in in understanding that they need to be, we need to step up and, and, and engage our kids in this. We are putting a lot of energy into, 
you know, basketball, soccer, violin, piano, if that is, I, I, I say that I don't know, I know that's not possible for all parents and I'm terrible about extracurriculars for my own kids, but we hear so much about how extracurriculars boost our academic performance and our general well-being. Parents and families need to shift the focus. Uh, do we want our kids to be engaged? Do we want them to be great pianists? We might have to shift, you know, where we're putting some of that focus on extracurriculars. And, uh, you know, maybe it means that let's, you know, not do both basketball and soccer. Let's, let's as a family, decide to take that time to volunteer, to do some craft projects, to do whatever it is that, that speaks to you. But maybe we need to shift our values in our and 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 how we're spending our time, and that could help usher this bigger movement forward. Awesome! A lot of great things have been brought up in this discussion. I hope that the people who are watching have been taking notes and listening have been taking lots of notes on how you can engage and uplift and support Gen Z and younger generations as well. So we are going to get into our audience questions. We have a few that have come in. I'm going to start off with a question from Lauren. This question is for you, Scott. What could funders do differently to encourage the kind of collaboration that you envision so that dollars aren't an impediment? Yeah, I mean, I think what, what I mean, it's a great question. And, and what, I would, uh, what I would say on that is the extent to which funders can really ensure that it's not just about sort of choosing sort of winners in the horse race and organizations above everybody else, but actually saying like, this is what we want to accomplish. And I think two specific ways to do that. One is through policy, which we talked about earlier, and actually to put some dollars behind some, some potential policy goals and organizations working together on that. And the other would be some place-based work. So I think when you get to a place-based work and you invest in districts and, and schools at a local level, you know, that's something that could be, that could be super powerful as well. And so thinking about what are ways that we can really encourage groups to, to work together, I've seen a lot of great collaboration happen when dollars are put at the forefront. So I think those are just some, some initial ways of thinking about it. Excellent. And so I'm just going to add another question on top of that, because I just think that this is such a great question. I'm going to ask you again, Scott, for this one. But just talking about, you know, we, you know, iCivics and Generation Citizen, we do a lot of work together, especially with funders funding us jointly. But if you could talk a bit about, like, what are those policy barriers? Because you mentioned, you know, getting behind policy. What are those policy barriers to requiring, you know, civics for graduation? You know, or how can we remove some of the barriers that you're seeing that, that I didn't just mention? So I think from a policy perspective, what I'd say is, is I mean, the barriers are just the, the immense amount of um, uh, the immense amount of commitments that, that educators already have to make to other subjects. Um, so the testing that's in place, they just have so much that they have to do in terms of the testing requirements. And so I think some of it is, is getting rid of those and some of those is incentivizing civics. So I think that is, it essentially looks like uh, incentivizing teacher professional development. That's super, super important and incentivizing ways that young people can be assessed on civics education to, through that comprehensive lens I was talking about before. So Massachusetts has been in a project-based assessment for, for students in terms of civics education, but it is about assessment and it's about resources. Um, so the more that we can push policy goals around those things, I think that the more effective that we can be. Excellent. Thank you so much for that follow-up. 
Um, Sarah, I'm going to start off with you on this one. So civic education requires a standard curriculum on how democratic institutions work, but how do we also provide space for students to voice opinions on ideology and partisanship inside the classroom? But then I'm also going to ask like outside of the classroom, how do we provide spaces for, for, you know, this next generation to explore these ideas? Yeah, I mean, the outside of the classroom, they're doing that already. So, I mean, take a look at any of your kiddos or your students' TikToks or their Instagrams. You can see that already. And I think that's already happening. And it's happening in, you know, in the ways that they want to do it. And so I think that I've seen it all over the different social media ways. You know, I didn't grow up with social media. Facebook didn't happen until I was in college. And so that's a big shift. But I think to the beginning part of your question, you know, at Ignite, we're not teaching the young women to walk out as Republicans or Democrats or independents. We're thinking about how do we facilitate dialogue and create space where they can really wrestle with these issues and wrestle with what brings them to this work, but also what their call to service is. And so I think there's that facilitated component and that dialogue that then (laughs) feeds right on out when they leave their time with us and where they're posting what they think about voting or they're posting a black tile because of Black Lives Matter or they're posting all sorts of different pieces that really get to what they're working on. Excellent. Amanda, I'm going to ask you this question. It comes from Crystal. I'm finding that young people feel really disillusioned with our election process and at the idea of having to vote for Joe Biden. How can we validate this while also encouraging them to vote? And then I'm going to have everyone actually answer this question. That's such an important question, and it's it's the you know disillusionment and and also think about how much is on their plates. We're in a global pandemic. There are wildfires raging through California. There are a huge amount of pressure. There's so many pressures, so many diverse pressures on young people. It's very hard for most of them to look at Joe Biden and identify with him. I think you know the the presence of Kamala Harris in this election is so important. Of course, just her story is important. Her, you know, who she is and how she's, what she looks like and how she speaks and how she connects to voters, I think will I th- lift a lot of that confusion and disillusionment. But I also think that like we as com- members of communities and families really need to be careful about how confusing and scary it is to be given the role of decision maker right now. And that is what we're doing. We're saying, sorry, guys, we dropped the ball. Um, <laughs> we're giving you this mess and it's up to you to clean it up. You know, if it's light, if it's, you know, let's envision this, let's use creative energy, let, you know, reward you. Let's, you know, as, as Sarah was saying, let's celebrate what you're doing. And, you know, that's a very different approach to the the conversation than, Hey guys, you've got a huge mess. Democracy may be dying, and you know, uh, can you heal it? It was so powerful to me to hear President Obama say last night, "Our ancestors suffered in ways that are you know beyond our comprehension." And to them, democracy was the healing process. It was the redemptive process. It was the way out of the suffering. And part of what's, I think, very confusing for a lot of young people now is that it seems that democracy is broken or that it is not um, the answer, right? 
they're being asked to kind of change and heal something that they don't understand or yet yet love and celebrate. And that's important. I think that's a critical part of our responsibility as we support these young people as they take on these leadership roles to reframe that. You know, democracy is a process. Yes, it's struggling, but there's so much potential for redemption. And this is what our ancestors believed in. Yeah, excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much. And I'm going to ask Sarah, like the same question really quickly. How can we validate uh, the disillusionment uh, while also encouraging them to get out and vote? Yeah, I think there's a deep acknowledgement of like democracy has failed our young people in a few different ways. And so I think understanding that at the very forefront is a first step because we can't sidestep that. You can't get out of the way, but also like get out of the way and like not acknowledge all of the different systematic barriers that exist. And so I think the big piece is the connection for our young people going back to my, I'll just be a broken record with how does the policy impact you personally and getting to the root pieces of that every single time. And I'm hoping that that's what people vote on at the ballot box or at their homes, (laughs) however they choose to vote, but choosing that particular piece of what's the deep connection between me, this candidate, or this particular ballot initiative and going with that. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, Scott, I'm going to ask you too, um, you know, how can we validate the disillusionment while also encouraging them to get out and vote? Yeah. I mean, I think it's partially what we've been talking about. Get out of the way. And I think we need to ensure that they understand that how important this election is and the work's going to continue past it. So I'll, you know, I'll be short and sweet on that, but incredibly important to participate now, incredibly important to participate going forward. The more broken politics are, the more important it is to participate in politics. Excellent. So we have one more audience question to get to before we tie everything up in a nice, neat, beautiful bow. So the question comes from Lynn. How do you think that young people can be prepared for the unique and new threats that face our democracy? Uh, For example, the power and threat of social media as a tool in civic engagement and election interference. Um, So Sarah, I'm actually going to ask you this question, if if you don't mind taking that on. Yeah. So removing barriers for voting, I really think you sh- they, they should text Sophia so that they can really work with Sophia to get their voting plan. I think that's the first step. And then I think the second really big piece is that this is a never ending conversation, just like leadership, just like change in our world. It's so constant and so ever evolutionary. And so I think having the deep conversations, whether it's at home, on social media, with their friends, via Zoom in any particular way. I think it's the constant conversation because that's where the deep reflection and the deep learning can truly come from. Okay, excellent. So it is an informal tradition to close this program because we've been like covering a variety of topics in such a small, short period of time. You guys have been super amazing, um, but it's an informal tradition to close every program by asking the guests, what is your 60 second idea to change the world? So remember, you got a 60 seconds, you know, what is your 60 second idea to change the world. I'm gonna start with Amanda and then go to Scott and then finish with Sarah. Okay, an empathy machine. The vision is, you. I, I, if I could only use it through Zoom, if I could lay my hands on Sarah, on the window of Sarah through Zoom and feel what she's feeling and know her experience even even in that moment, what is she smelling? What is she, you know, uh, maybe not her thoughts, all of them, that might be a little much. 
but 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 where is her where is she what what is her you know the state of her soul i want to i wish that we could do that and i think maybe that's partly pandemic i think we can i think i could if i were near you maybe lay my hands on your shoulder and and feel that i think there are people who have great powers of empathy what is the what is there a machine <laughs> is there an invention that could heighten and celebrate powers of empathy we could all use a lot more empathy going around. So thank you for that. I love that idea. Scott, 60 second idea to change the world. One thing I was thinking about here, just being a little different, is what I would put in place is a mandatory active listening class in schools. I think that there's so much in terms of listening that we can do. We're not actually teaching people how to do it. And so that's, you know, I'll be short and sweet, but I think that that's such an important thing in terms of how to actually listen to people. It's, it's indispensable for, for politics and our democracy. Sarah, what's your 60-second idea to change the world? I want to flip power. I want to flip power today. I don't want to wait 20 years from now. I want young women at the forefront um, leading our work every single day, whether it is the manager of Starbucks leading us to our best selves in that way or the next president of the United States. I want to flip power today. What an awesome way to end. Thank you so very much. I just want to thank, you know, Amanda and Scott and Sarah for your time today. I want to thank everyone listening uh, for your time today. We really, really appreciate it joining us in this discussion. Uh, We hope that you walk away with some epiphanies and also some encouragement to join or jump in in the work that these great organizations are embarking on. Please visit their websites and see how you can get involved. And just thank you all so much for watching. And I hope that you have a great rest of your day.